Good morning, it's Sunday, the fourth day of September, 2016. He was born in 1875 and was a highly intelligent poet, painter, novelist, chess player, and mountaineer. He was also involved in the occult and what he called sex magic, and he continues to be an influence on people even today. Today, I tell the story to the best of my abilities of Alistair Crowley on the 204th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. I hope everybody is doing well. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that there are spirits, both good and evil, that can be summoned to influence the living? Well, to be honest, I don't. But I was listening to the Monster Talk podcast in which a fellow named Brian Regal discussed his fascination over occult studies. There was a brief discussion of Aleister Crowley, and I realized that I knew very little about the man. I mean, all my life I just assumed he was a fake and a fraud who pretended to be a wizard or or fooled people into thinking that he was actually practicing magic. But I was wrong. Whether Crowley truly contacted spirits from beyond or not, he wasn't a fraud in the sense that he truly believed that what he was doing was real. Of course, he also experimented heavily with drugs, so we must take that into account. The first thing I looked up after deciding to do this story was, well, the correct way to pronounce his name. I always said Crowley, as in Ozzy Osbourne's song, Mr. Crowley, which was the first place I ever heard of the man back in the late 70s. But every documentary I watched called him Crowley, especially by English people. So I will go with Crowley. The next thing I discovered was that there was a lot of fascinating information to the story. More than I expected. I mean, I originally planned on doing just one episode, but now this might turn into a two or three part story. And if you ask me why, it's because I find it fascinating and that's why I do the podcast. But here's the thing. Even if I do three parts, I'm still only scratching the surface. Part of my research was from a book called Do What Thy Wilt by Lawrence Sutton. The book is about 500 pages, and there are many more books about Crowley, and I'm sure they contain even more information or at least conflicting information. The complete story would take weeks or even years to tell. So if you're an expert on Aleister Crowley, you want to tell me, Jeff, you left this out or you left that out, forget it, I did the best I could. But feel free to tell me things you think I got wrong. I always appreciate that. So now it's sort of a longish story, so let's get into part one of the life of the strange man known as Aleister Crowley. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. 
Thank you for your support. Bury me in the nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. They slew me, for I did disparage therefore religion, law, and marriage. So be my grave without a name, that earth may swallow up my shame. He was born Edward Alexander Crowley on the night of October 12, 1875, during the height of the Victorian era in the town of Leamington in England. Edward had been the name of his father and his grandfather. He was brought into a life of privilege, never wanting for anything, as his family was the owners of a brewing company called Crowley's Ales. It was a company founded by his grandfather and was so successful that Crowley's father had been able to retire at an early age. His parents were part of the Plymouth Brethren, a faction of a Christian fundamentalist group that believed in the literal truth of the Bible. Since his father didn't have to work, he spent his time as a traveling preacher. And every morning he would get up and read from the Bible to both his wife Emily and his son. As he grew up, both parents warned him of the dangers of temptation and the dreadful cost of sin. The young boy followed his father around, listening to his unorthodox preaching, and perhaps had the idea of following in his father's footsteps. He seems to have respected his father, saying later that for all his father's misguided religion, he was a gentleman and a natural aristocrat. When Crowley was five, he experienced death for the first time. His sister died about five hours after she was born. Crowley's attitude towards this was, why should he be disturbed by this? He couldn't do any good, the child was dead, and that was none of his business. At the age of eight, he was sent to the H.D. Habersham's Evangelist Christian Boarding School in Hastings. It was the death of his father in 1887, when he was only 11 years old, that maybe started him on the path that would eventually make him known as the most wicked man in the world. His father died at the age of 43, the cause of which, of all things, was cancer of the tongue. Crowley described this as a turning point in his life. He always maintained an admiration for his father, describing him as a hero and a friend, but also said there was no real love for his father. Yet it seemed that this was the beginning of his anger and hatred of the church, the tutors that had been hired to school him, and his very stern and religious mother. He would begin to rebel, and this was made all the easier since he inherited a third of his father's wealth. In his diary, he wrote, I had arrived at the conclusion that the Plymouth Brethren were an exceptionally detestable crew. I wanted sin, a supreme spiritual sin, but hadn't the slightest idea of how to go about it. He was attending a preparatory school in Cambridge when he met a man who would push him farther in that direction. Crowley described his time there as a boyhood in hell and the man who ran the school, a Reverend Chapney, as a sadist. 
Reverend Chapney believed in severe punishments for transgressing the bounds of propriety. One incident seems to have really affected Crowley, in which he was accused of being found drunk by another boy who had visited his home. He was never told why he was being punished, nor was his mother told. He said, I was expected to confess the crime, of which I was not only innocent, but unaccused. The punishment, which I believed criminal authorities would consider severe on a prisoner, went for a term and a half. For this punishment, he was placed in solitary. Neither students nor masters could speak to him, or he to them. He only got bread and water, and in the hours set aside for playing, he was only permitted to walk around and around in the empty classroom, and during the work hours, he was placed alone in the playground. He said the strain and misery affected his kidneys, and he had to leave school altogether for two years. It was also at this time that he began to fantasize about torture and blood. And, of course, his thoughts also turned to the opposite sex. But in his case, this included his suffering at the hands of wicked women. It was his uncle, Tom Bishop, who didn't believe in the accusations against the boy that took him out of school. And through a series of private tutors that he had hired, Crowley began taking an interest in, and excelled in, mathematics, English literature, and Greek and Latin. He also enjoyed reading books that had been previously denied to him. Poetry became a great interest, and he had the idea of becoming a great poet. He also began mountain climbing, something that he would also become an expert in. Now, he always had a bitterness towards his mother, who had, on various occasions, began calling him the Beast. Since she took the word of the Bible seriously, this would not have been a term used lightly. Some have written, and I think Crowley did as well, that she really believed that her son was the Antichrist. Crowley later wrote of his mother, Her powerful maternal instincts were suppressed by religion to the point that she became, after her husband's death, a brainless bigot of the most narrow, logical, and inhuman type. This was about the time he began referring to himself as the Beast 666, taken from the book of Revelations from the Bible. When he was 15, Crowley lost his virginity to a lady he had met in a theater, and this opened a whole new world for him, sex becoming a lifelong obsession with both men and women. The sins of the flesh made him extremely happy, but not so much for his mother. He had somehow convinced a young parlor maid at his home to go to bed with him on his mother's bed. When his mother discovered this, she fired the maid. Now over the years, Alistair Crowley made some pretty amazing claims, such as this one that the maid, after leaving the house, ended up becoming a prostitute, who was later one of the victims of Jack the Ripper. He also claimed later that he knew the identity of Jack the Ripper and had met him on one occasion. In October of 1895, Crowley entered Cambridge University, and it was there he took on the name Alistair. Most of the time at the university was spent fishing and mountain climbing, as well as playing and excelling in the game of chess. 
he practiced for two hours every day and became president of the chess club, winning many championships. In fact, for a while, he toyed with the idea of becoming a professional chess player. When not playing chess or climbing rocks, he spent most of his time reading. He had a love of literature and poetry, especially the works of Richard Francis Burton and Percy Shelley. He wrote his own poetry, and it appeared in student publications. Some of his poetry, however, was so pornographic that he could only publish it overseas using a false name. It is also said that he contracted gonorrhea from a Glasgow prostitute. It was one night while he was vacationing in Stockholm, Sweden, that Alistair had his first mystical experience. It was New Year's Eve... 1897, when around midnight, as Alistair later wrote, I was asleep and yet I was awake, but this wasn't a dream. I became astutely aware that I possessed a magical means of becoming conscious of something inside me. I could release a side to my nature that I didn't know existed. It was a painful, terrifying, and horrific experience, yet at the same time it seemed to be the answer. It was so pure and spiritual. My path was chosen. The Stockholm experience had allowed me to discover what I wanted to spend my time on. I would be adept in the secret arts, a magnus. And through my own true will, I could guarantee immortality and control the secret forces of nature. There were three things that Crowley wanted to master at this point in his life. Poetry, mountain climbing, and the search for spiritual truth. When he was 21, he received a very large trust fund, which meant he never had to worry about money again, and that worked out well because it was at this time he began being fascinated with magic and the occult. He left the university and began to seek out secret societies that practiced dark and forbidden rituals. It took him two years, but finally, through George Cecil Jones, found the occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or simply the Golden Dawn. The group was very exclusive and featured an upper-class membership that was devoted to the study and practices of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities during the late 19th and early 20th century. Many famous people of the time were members, or alleged members, such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, W.B. Yeats, and Bram Stoker. Alistair quickly rose to the ranks of the Golden Dawn, but had a problem. There were people who didn't want him to move up to the second order of the Golden Dawn. The poet Yeats and a few others were not too crazy about his bisexual and libertine lifestyle. This was at a time when all forms of drugs were legal, but homosexuality was a crime. Crowley was most likely at this point taking a lot of narcotics, and he was also rumored to have relationships with both men and women. Crowley met Golden Dawn member Alan Bennett and invited him to live in his home and become his personal magical tutor. Through Alan, Crowley learned about ceremonial magic and the ritual use of drugs. And together they performed the ritual of Goatia, a practice that included the invocation of angels and of demons. When Bennett left for South Asia to study Buddhism, 
Crowley felt it was time to put some of the magic he had learned to use. The Book of the Sacred Magic of the Abromelon, the Mage, dates back to the 14th century and it is sort of a black magic ritual to summon up good and evil spirits. And one can command these spirits to do one's will, you know, that sort of thing. It is considered very dangerous and had not been attempted in centuries. Some people think that if the Abromelon went wrong, evil spirits could be released and take over the magician. Crowley purchased the Boleskine House on the shores of Loch Ness in Scotland, as he thought this was the perfect place to perform the Abromelon. It's just the type of place the text recommends for the ritual. An isolated area with a room set aside for the oratory to be used exclusively for prayer and magic rituals. A door from the oratory must face north, outside of which should be a terrace, which is to be covered in fine sand from a riverbed. At the north end of the terrace, there should be a lodge where spirits both good and evil can be conjured. These spirits can only be approached after the holy guardian angel has been evoked. The six-month ceremony is a difficult one and it requires a strict lifestyle, such as only taking in bread and water, getting up and praying at the right time, you know, like odd hours of the night, and being abstinent. Sort of like living like a monk, but perhaps harder. Crowley would later claim that he did unleash spirits. The house became infested with shadowy shapes. His housekeeper couldn't take living there anymore and left. Yet Crowley gave up the ceremony only after a couple of weeks. It seemed that he had heard that his attempt at becoming part of the Second Order of the Golden Dawn had not been accepted. He quickly left for Paris to meet with the group's leader, Samuel Lytle McGregor Mathers, to find out why. Now, many believe that this unfinished ritual was the cause of many problems. Evil spirits may have infested the house and even Crowley himself. Many of the locals refused even to walk by the home, and many strange incidents happened to people who lived in the house after Crowley, including Major Edward Grant, who, while living in the Boleskine house in 1965, committed suicide with a shotgun in the bedroom that Crowley used to sleep in. There are even people out there that think that the ceremony released <clears throat> the Loch Ness Monster. The McGillivary family, who lived there from 1992 to 2001, actually never had a problem. When Mrs. McGillivary was asked if they experienced anything strange at the home, she said, Absolutely none. I'm a non-believer and didn't listen to all that rubbish. We had a great time there. Meanwhile, let's get back to the story. Alistair Crowley was in a panic about not being accepted into the Second Order of the Golden Dawn. He met with Samuel Mathers, the leader, and it seemed that Mathers was concerned about losing control of the group and needed an ally. When Crowley gave him access to all his funds, he quickly performed the ceremony to admit him in the Adeptus Minor Grade, and Crowley was thrilled. But returning to the Second Order headquarters, he finally refused to recognize his promotion. There was a mutiny going on against him and Mathers. And after a failed attempt to gain control of the group, Crowley's time with the Golden Dawn had come to an end. 
and so apparently did the Golden Dawn. After that, Crowley took off from Mexico to get back to his magic, where he attempted, and if you believe him, succeeded in acquiring the ability to be invisible. He did this by invoking the Greek god of silence, Hippocrates. He also indulged in his love of mountain climbing with his friend Oscar Eckerstein. And after a few impressive climbs, they made an attempt to climb the K2 in the Himalayas, the second highest mountain in the world. Something that had never been attempted before. Unfortunately, Crowley was affected with influenza, malaria, and snow blindness. And other expedition members were also sick, so they gave it up after reaching an altitude of over 20,000 feet, which is still pretty impressive. After returning to the Boleskine House and writing more poetry, he met Rose Edith Kelly in August of 1903. She was a highly attractive young society lady and the sister of his friend, the painter Gerald Kelly. Crowley described her as a charming woman, but hardly an intellectual companion. Rose had a problem. She was having a passionate affair with a married man, and because of this, and the scandal that it might cause, her family wanted her to marry a man she did not love. Crowley offered another solution, for her to marry him, and she agreed. The marriage caused a rift with her family and his friendship with Gerald Kelly, but from all accounts, Crowley did love Rose, or at least grew to love her as time went on. Crowley described the months following the marriage as an uninterrupted sexual debauchery. They took a trip to Paris and then on to Cairo. The two took a honeymoon to Paris and then on to Cairo. In Cairo, the couple found an apartment and Alistair quickly set up a temple with the room facing north. Now, originally, Rose was not impressed or involved with Crowley's magic. But by this point, she was heavily involved. And also, by this time, she was pregnant with Alistair's child. The two spent a night in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, in which Crowley was showing off some of his magic. Then, something odd occurred. Crowley wrote, Rose got into a strange state of mind. I've never seen anything like it before. She kept on repeating, dreamily, Yet intensely, they are waiting for you. They are waiting for you. When he asked who was waiting, she told him the Egyptian god Horus was waiting. Being that she knew very little about magic or the Egyptian gods, Crowley was more irritated than anything else. Why would she receive a message from the other side? He took her to an Egyptian museum to see if there was anything to what she was saying, and she went through the rooms quickly when suddenly she stopped and pointed at a statue of Horus and told Crowley, there he is. It was the god she had seen in her vision, and apparently the exhibit was numbered 666. She said to him that she had been instructed to go back to the temple in their hotel room and wait. Alistair knew that this was what he had been waiting for all his life. It was around noon on April 4th, 1904, in his hotel room, that an unearthly voice began to speak to him from over his left shoulder. The spirit identified itself as Awas and appeared in front of him. 
This happened for one hour exactly at the same time of day from noon to 1 p.m. over the next three days. The voice dictated to Alistair the Book of the Law. It would become Crowley's most famous work. It was a new order or new religion that Crowley would be the master of. He would be the new prophet. It contained the line, Do what thou wilt! shall be the whole of the law. Now is your chance to be like the gods. I'm gonna show you a world where the only crime is to not do whatever you wanna do. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And all I ask is that you take my message of freedom into your hearts. Do you? Accept me. Do you accept me? Mansion, once used for occult rituals, has been badly damaged by fire. Bonneskin House on the shores of Loch Ness was owned in the 19th century by Alistair Crowley, who claimed to have summoned demons there. The house was later owned by the Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. You know, the problem with doing a story on somebody like Aleister Crowley is trying to find objective or even skeptical sites on the man. Because most places you go to, whether it's YouTube or the, the Internet, people want to promote the more mystical side, the more magical side of him, as if these things really happened. And I'm not saying they didn't. I am saying I don't believe they did. Even the Biography Channel documentary that's available on YouTube, you know, that while they don't say that it actually happened, they seem to tell the story in a way to make you want to believe that some of these things were real. And, you know, they had the all the mystical music in the background and haunting tunes and things. And it's hard for one not to start to think, wow, this guy really was magic. And like I said, I'm not saying he wasn't. I just don't believe that he was myself. Anyway, the problem I have with the do what thou wilt thing, which gets a lot of attention from people over the years, is that I'm a big believer in doing anything you want that makes you happy, but as long as you're not hurting other people in the process, you know? I think of drugs. I have no problem with using drugs for recreational purposes. I like my beer. But the problem with drugs is if it starts affecting those around you, you know, making the lives of your spouse, your parents, children, or your friends miserable, well, then it's, it's sort of wrong, right? Well, then it's not right. As we get into part two of our story about Crowley, we'll see how his new religion and attitude towards life, in some cases, horribly affect those people around him. Anyway, the story was a little long today, so let's get into everybody's favorite part of the show, the ending credits. This show and all the others on the Psycon Network are brought to you by listeners like you. Well, some of you, those that sponsor us at our Patreon page. The rest of you should probably feel guilty about getting all this wonderful entertainment for free, right? 
Actually, I'm just joking. I'm just glad you listened. But if you wanted to help out, you can go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, for more information about being a subscriber. And of course, a sincere thanks to all of you who already subscribe. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On the latest episode of Take 5, Anthony and Jack talk for five minutes about hedgehogs. No, really, five minutes about hedgehogs, but it's pretty funny. Check out this and other shows at the PsyCon Network. That's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain and tell me how wrong I am about Aleister Crowley, feel free. I'll read it and probably send you an answer back. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a great review. Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources I use to write the story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all of you who repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Dawn of just new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
Coffee.